And this is a very particular retreat where I'm just, if it's okay, tracking my own arriving rather hot and sweaty from a, a, a bicycle trip across the hills to uh, the stillness of the hall and uh, a sense of just, for myself, just ah, settling and hopefully tuning into the vibration that's here and maybe my voice will drop down a couple of levels in my body and my voice and my words will slow down a couple of sort of words per second in my delivery as I do that. <coughs> and so I've been here for a day and a half I guess we could say and practicing a lot of uh, kind of landing and arriving and engaging with the various we could say possibilities and challenges that being on retreat and meditation offer us and engage us with. And what I'd like to speak about this morning and offer some reflections on is the topic of, of body as the, the primary foundation for practice or kaya as the Buddha spoke of it. And bodies are always very central in our practice. Being embodied is a central aspect of human experience. It is what the Buddha spoke of as the first foundation or framework for cultivating wakefulness, mindfulness, presence, attentiveness. And it's always right here. It's the great advantage of the body. It's right here. It's never to be found somewhere else other than here. And it's always right now. It never occurs at some other time in space. It's just here. It doesn't go to some other time or space. It's always now. And so as we connect with it, we come quite naturally into contact with the immediacy of what is here and now. This living experience unfolding. And we're invited to connect with it and to contemplate it. And it can be very helpful if we find, as is not unusual, in the time of establishing oneself in a retreat, in the, the beginning process. And just to say with that, that we might have a sense of the beginning of the retreat as the first day or two, and that may be how you experience it, but if you haven't done a retreat of this length before, um, maybe a useful possibility to contemplate, which I'm not, I don't know, of course, what will happen in your experience, but the beginning of a retreat often is in proportion to the length of it, and so if one was on retreat for a day, it's, you know, it's the first couple of hours. If it's a week, it's the first day. If it's a month, it might be like a few days, or, and if you were going on retreat for a year, the first several weeks might be just the beginning, the landing, the arriving. So why I say that is to really give yourself permission to have the experience you have, rather than in any way, as we so easily do, imposing an idea onto it of where we should have got to by the morning of the second day, for instance. Now, probably that's not what you're doing, but it's kind of useful to be aware of it. And in that, if we do notice strong patterns of thinking or um, 
charged emotional processes that are arising and moving in our experience, as is quite natural and understandable, can be so helpful to bring the attention into the body. Not trying to necessarily stop or push away such experiences, but as a way of disentangling from them without somehow devaluing or disregarding them. To come into the body, notice what in the body may be resonant with, vibrating in, in resonance with, or just expressing or holding or connected in some way to patterns of thought and emotion. Generally when we can't let them go easily or they keep coming back repeatedly, it's because there's some charge in relationship to the emotion, in relationship to the thought. And handling the charge is often most helpfully done using the body as the, the place in which we can meet it. And it's something that I imagine you've all heard about many, many times. So it might be also we go, ah, oh, okay, yeah, we, we know about mindfulness of body, it's good, you know, we kinda we maybe have hopes and plans for more profound or subtle possibilities. The mind can be like that. And yet I think the really honouring and respecting the, the centrality of body and in practice is, is so helpful. And you know, when the Buddha talks about it, he, he speaks of, of attending to the breath. And in fact, not to the breath as such, the word or the translation, the breath, I find less helpful. As I understand it from friends who are scholars, I'm not, of scholars of Pali, and uh, that, um, that, that actually it's most accurately translated as the giving attention to or being mindful of anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out. And that feels to me really different than mindfulness of the breath, as if it's some kind of removed object that we're observing at a safe distance. And that's sometimes how it seems we might take up that practice. Whereas mindfulness of breathing in and breathing out, it's like, oh, that's, a, that's actually a body practice. That's the body breathing in and breathing out. It's not about the breath per se. It's about the breathing in and the breathing out. And so it occurs as the first, or one of the first things the Buddha speaks about within the contemplation of the body. And knowing when it's coming in. Knowing when it's going out. When it's long, it's short. The whole body. Breathing, awareness of breathing in this way, so helpful. And uh, as, as uh, one of the translations says, not just mindfulness of the body, but mindfulness immersed in the body. And again, one can hear the difference. Oh, mindfulness of the body. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's the body, you know, there's the body. But mindfulness immersed in the body. Oh, oh what's that? What's that? Bringing attention to the posture, to the movements throughout the day. When we begin a retreat, of course, it can sometimes feel like, you know, our, our capacity for engaging with wholeheartedness is pretty well consumed by the formal periods of meditation and it's, it's kind of hard to give a lot of attention outside of that. 
but nonetheless just seeing what's possible for you and over the days as you settle more in so helpful so important to sustain the practice through the day and the body being again primary vehicle for allowing us to do that because it's always here whether moving or still whether comfortable or otherwise huh we can come back to this the Buddha invites us to contemplate the body as its parts, its constituent elements. And there's something about this that's really important to say because the early and some of the current versions and translations of the teaching suggest that this is a contemplation of the impurity of the body, noticing all the things in it that we sometimes might get a sense of it's being described as a, Ugh, kidneys, Ugh, phlegm, Ugh, pus, Ugh, fingernails. It's almost like that kind of attitude is expressed in the way it's sometimes articulated, the impurity of the body. And yet, this is a translation of a word which, if you look at it carefully, purity, and we actually know this, is sometimes used with a sort of a, a moral association of what is good and right and or what is yucky and horrible or not liked. But it's also used in the same context as pure tomato sauce. It's like there's just tomatoes in there. Nothing else. Nothing wrong with it. You can put it on your dinner. So impure has no rejection, pushing away, deciding it's disgusting or anything like that. It's just ah, impure. As in made up of multiple constituents. We wouldn't say it's impure tomato sauce, would we? We'd say it's tomato sauce with, with you know, basil and oregano or whatever it might be if we were looking at it from that point of view. And with the body, the looking at the body in this way is to notice, oh, it's not all just one thing. So the body is a, a word or a phrase we use to refer to actually a construct full of different things. And yes, so there's all these organs and limbs and fluids and solids and all of this. And the Buddha talks about contemplating them as if there was a sack of grain that was open at both ends and you could see that, oh, this is, this is rice and this is dal and this is sesame and this is I don't know broad beans and it's like ah oh, it's just it's it's a sack full of different things that's what the contemplation is inviting us to notice not Ugh, broad beans Ugh, you know and it's so important I think because the interpretation that came from a um, early translation by primarily Victorian English persons um, who first translated these texts at least into English came up with a language that gives a sense of Ugh, we don't like the body that may have more to do with Victorian values than the Buddha's teaching so again I just offer this as a reflection mindfulness immersed in the body I mean you wouldn't want to get in there if it was full of horrible things would you you'd stand off at a distance go hmm what's that but if I'm going to immerse myself in this, I, I might need to have a relationship of a, at least respect and trust and possibly even appreciation for what this is. And the Buddha also talks about contemplating the body as elements. And this is interesting. It's sometimes a bit outside of our normal mode of how we think about things. We're uh, so many of us easily habituated and definitely conditioned to think in very materialistic terms and the elements all sound a bit sort of airy fairy and you know what's all this earth water fire you know going on um air and space you know it seems like it's my body isn't it what's well, the floor the carpet isn't it 
And so there's something interesting about the, the invitation to contemplate them, the body as in its elemental expression and nature. It doesn't, it's not something we can easily do with a concept or an idea. And as we come into contact with the direct felt experience of the body, of course it reveals itself as quite simple experiences we can directly feel. And it comes down to variations, combinations and changes of simple experiences. And the primary one is pressure. We feel when there's some pressure on the body. And it can be hard or soft, light or firm. But this is earth element. It's that solidity, hardness or softness or absence of earth would be a salt, you know, really soft. But that's earth element. And when we talk about sitting, practice or standing or walking or lying, we're, we're engaging with initially the invitation is often contact the ground, feel where you are in touch with the earth because there you get a clear sense of that elemental, ah, right underneath my bottom it feels firm. <laughs> okay, that's earth. And this body is full of earth element, elements that are solid, that are firm, that generate pressure. When we have a contraction somewhere, we sometimes feel, like, oh, I've got a stone lodged in my gut. It's like, oh, stone. It's like something that we'd get and find in the earth. Oh, that's a lot of earth element just here. Oh, rather, oh, there's something that shouldn't be here. No, we need it, earth element. And uh, the other primary one we feel directly with our sensory system is temperature, warmth. Things are hot or cool or somewhere in between which is like about the same as us so we don't notice it. If it's warm or cool it's in relationship to our temperature. More than us, warm. Less than us, cool. About us, temperature, I didn't notice any. Huh. But it's always there. And that's fire element. So when we notice warmth or coolness as an element, oh it's fire element coming and getting off my bike, struggling to get a couple of chairs through the very narrow doorway from the walking room into here. Um, and it's like I can feel hot, hot, hot. Sit down. Wonder, as I have to, hmm, how hot? Will I be cold after 15 minutes if I take my jacket off? Possibly, but too hot now, so take it off. And so, you know, oh, I'm engaged with fire element. Ah, okay, yeah. Hmm. That's just a contemplation. The other elements are slightly less directly noticed, but nonetheless felt. So that's fire. Temperature we experience. There's movement. When, when pressure or temperature change from one to another, we experience what we call movement. Or what we call movement is revealed as changes in pressure and temperature. It's like, oh, something's changing. I've gone from a warm place to a cool place. Or I'm feeling a shift in the bodily experience. Do as I straighten my arm, we could say it's movement, but it's also the experience of what tells me that is the experience of pressure in my arm is moved in different ways to different places, increased in some, decreased in other. Oh, okay, that's actually movement. And of course, the air moves around us, but inside, experiences moving, changing, that's air element. Water is curious. It, I puzzled over this for a while. Water is not just, it's not particularly the liquid in your body, although it is, but um, 
water as an element has its primary expression and one might have thought movement but no air's already got that one tied up um, water has as its primary expression cohesion that's what water represents in our experience and we think water cohesion it makes sense when you think of a pile of flour add a bit of water boom it's dough oh, it becomes one you add um, some water to some dust it becomes mud huh you take away the water from your body you have a pile of dust ah cohesion water oh so where we feel things that sort of there's a sense of gathered togetherness or a cohering or a sort of singularityness about our experience despite acknowledging earlier that there's all these parts there's also this kind of wholeness about it, it coheres yeah that's water and you know as an element for life water is what seems to facilitate its existence i.e what would otherwise be things that can't connect to each other that would just be little you know dust and powder and molecules water somehow facilitates that huh. water element and the fifth of the elements that the buddha speaks of sometimes talks about four sometimes five but the fifth is space which is in a sense it's the absence of something to reference it's like oh there's something here and we feel like i feel space but what we're actually feeling is that in that area where i'm bringing my attention there's there's nothing there that I can register. I'm not getting temperature, I'm not getting um, pressure, I'm not getting any sense of movement, there's no sense of a cohesion or some sort of something gathered together. It's just, oh, it's absence. It's so it references, in a way, the not-thereness that we sometimes experience. And that's the element of space. And so we can attend to these, we can notice these, we can go, ah, yeah. That's part of the experience that can help us begin to see how the body is so often subject to our subtle and not so subtle patterns of attachment, of grasping, of aversion and of identification. And so we're invited using these different ways, you know, to cont as well as the body as a grounding for our presence and attention and a foundation for our practice. It also gives us a place where we contemplate we see it's changing oh yeah that water element things in the in the experience of the body change sorry air element confusing you or maybe i'm just confusing myself and you know what's what i meant to say um and we see that because of that it can't give us lasting satisfaction because it doesn't stay the same we can't get it into the shape we would like it or the place we would like it or the comfort we would like it or the appearance we would like it or the digestive sort of capacity or, or limitation that we would like it it just does what it does and in a certain way there we also see it's, it's not me or mine it's it's life it's life expressing it's connected with everything and those elements are actually a way we also say oh the elements universal it's it's not personal earth element or you know my if, if my stomach's a little sore, it might feel really personal, but it's like, oh, it's a kind of aching to it. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a sort of a pressure in there. Oh, there's the earth element. Oh, interesting. Maybe my stomach's trying to become a planet, you know? It's sort of cohering in. Oh, hmm. Such contemplations can be useful. And, of course, 
guess with any contemplation, to, to see if it is useful, because if it's not, then you can really just put it down. And yet that contemplation, you see, oh, this is not me, this is not mine. I don't own this. It's not somebody else's. I still have to take care of it. But I can't quite define myself by it. And it's so dependent on so much that it, it shows me that it can't be mine in a way that is somehow separate for it, from it also being owned, if anything owns it, by, by life and all that supports it. So this, this practice, this contemplation is so helpful. Contemplating the body, mindfulness immersed in the body. And whatever practice we might feel ourselves drawn to, whatever we might I have a reasonably low grade um, thermal adjustment capacity in my body. I mostly adjust it by putting things on and taking things off. Uh, friends I know seem to be able to somehow do that internally better than I do. So uh, it's kind of curious. It's like, oh, body. Yeah, this is the one I got. It's a basis and a foundation for pretty much any kind of practice that we feel moved or drawn to engage in. It will be of value. Even though sometimes it may seem, you know, practices such as cultivating Brahma Viharas, the, the uh, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. That these things we think, oh, it's, it's sort of it's a, it's a heart and sort of heart-mind process. Mainly. It's true in one sense, but actually being grounded in the body is so helpful. So helpful. So helpful. One of my teachers, when I was doing a long practice of Brahma Vihara um, meditation for <coughs> several weeks, uh, she told me how once she was practicing so full of loving-kindness, so full of loving-kindness, so full of loving kindness and she was getting her dinner and she was so looking forward to it and she had her seat and she got her dinner and she got, went and got a drink and came back and full of loving kindness sat in her dinner. And I said, ah, she said, a little mindfulness in my body would have been good there. Because sometimes she put the dinner on the seat, she went to get the drink, she came back, may I be happy, may all beings be happy. Ah. Uh. That sense of, okay, so when I practice something that might take me into something expansive or vast, and beautifully so, okay, I still need to ground that in my body and do that from here, from now, and where the body can be. And of course, the, the development of the Brahma Viharas of loving kindness and these others is, is something deeply and powerfully facilitated by the energetic vibratory resonance of the body which is deeply and intimately connected with the resonant capacities of the heart and the mind. So from that point of view, of course, it just makes sense to be engaged with the body while practicing Brahma-viharas. And to be really sensitive to our bodies, to bring a sense of kindness, sense of 
recognizing of its limitations, its vulnerabilities. And, you know, we can be quite fierce with the body sometimes. And again, early translations that we have to acknowledge, again, came from relatively, um, I don't know, views of the body that weren't particularly appreciative or compassionate, if I can say that in a kindly enough way, um, that suggest if one reads them, well, you really just don't need to worry about your body, you know. Um, it's, you know, it gets in your way a bit, but you'll get beyond it. And actually, the point of this practice is really, you know, you didn't really want to get into a body, and having got into one, you really should get out of it and not do that again. You know, that's sometimes an impression we get. It's like, oh, the body's not really the point. And, of course, no one aspect of our experience is the point. But anything that's left out means that somehow we lose the wholeness of our practice. And uh, that sense of, of being kind with our body uh, as we practice, kindness to the body, is so helpful. And, uh, you know, one of the early texts I remember reading in it, seem to basically say, well, you know, just practice, don't worry about your body. If you're hurted or even if it dies, you know, there's only two situations we're of concern. Either you get enlightened in the process, you're fully awakened, in which case it doesn't matter about your body. Or you die. And in that case, you get another body, so you can just start again. And it's kind of like, hmm, that doesn't quite seem like the kind of relationship that makes sense to me and that in a way expresses a, a kind of a a relationship to the world that you sometimes find in spirituality which is dismissive or afraid or sometimes disgusted by life in its manifest embodied form. And I do not believe this was the Buddha's teaching. But translations vary. So we have to see actually what's useful for me. What works for me has got to be the question. And on that note, you know, the Buddha was known as the perfect teacher because he could teach each person as they needed to be taught. There were other enlightened beings in a way, and his own students became awakened beings. But he was always pointed to as that. And whether it was the literal, you know, historic Siddhartha Gautama of two and a half thousand years ago, or whether we're talking about the archetype of the fully awakened heart-mind, that would know exactly what was needed for each person in each situation. What that means is that there isn't just one approach that's going to fit for everyone all the time or else that would be the only teaching that was needed. But each person as they need to be taught. And consequently books and shelves full of books of teachings of different articulations, approaches and, and understandings. And it continues to grow. And the, you know... The, the transmission of the Dharma further and new developments of oh, what is useful for human beings emerges. So there's that bringing of kindness and sensitivity to the body and uh, really honoring the, also the mystery and the beauty of this that is alive, that breathes, that is here not forever but for now not forever, sort of like, okay, you don't hold. But now, yeah, now. And this now extends out. Moment after moment. To appreciate this, to be kind. So our attention is not just observing from a safe distance with some possible 
hostility or judgment or rejection or disinterest, but actually a, an intimate immersion with this. Oh, it's actually mindfulness in this body, with this body, of this body. Oh, it's actually quite a, yeah, it's quite an intimate thing or it has that possibility. There's something beautiful about that. If we wish to practice samatha, deep, developing, deepening states of calm and collectedness, of gatheredness, of focus, which we sometimes talk about as concentration. And concentration is another one of those words which I probably would have to confess I have a bone to pick with. I don't think it's so helpful for most of us who might have uh, sat in a school classroom and had a teacher say, hey kid, concentrate! And we've internalised that, concentrate! And that involves tightening up and forcing through effort the attention into a place where it doesn't actually want to go because it's not interested because it's really much more interesting what's going on out through the window for a 10-year-old boy or girl or child of any gender who has been told to concentrate as if it's something you can do. And so sometimes concentration evokes for us, not for everyone, a sense of a contracting, a tightening, a forcing. And again, to use... You know, the different ways we use the language. And uh, I'm aware the particular vegetable shows up again, but it's tomato concentrate. It's like you get that stuff by extracting all the water. And it's really not much good to anyone without some water in it. It's just useful for storing it conveniently and transporting it. And so we're not in concentrating, or I would say gathering, collecting, establishing focus and unification we're not extracting the moisture that's not how you do this which is the sense of just trying to hold and fix or, or tighten forcefully the body is the field in which the mind and heart come to rest so far as we're trying to concentrate what we call the heart mind chitta that which is affected by and responds to experience, which we notice as fragmented or scattered or disconnected, and that we naturally and probably want to gather. And the sense of gathering is sort of like a, a gathering or a receiving or a of, a of a bringing together of what is disparate and holding the forces, handling to handle the forces that react and interact and tend to propel the various movements that distract. And actually, as we become more established in the body, as a field of experience, of sensation, of vibration, of energetic expressions, and we talked about, you know, earth and water, fire, air and space. And as we as we become we, we start to feel that this is actually equally as true an expression of what body is, is a field of vibration as the image we might have of a of a shape that corresponds with a sort of a a reasonably hairless, two legged or, you know, bipedal mammal. 
with reasonably highly developed forearms and hands and a really large head. And that's the image we have. We don't think of it like that, but in relationship to our body, we all have really big heads for mammals. Human beings have. And sometimes contemplating the body is an invitation to humility. Just noticing that one and the sense of, huh, okay, yeah, this body. This body. So in the developing of samatha and calm, of this unifying, it's like coming back into the body as the attention is dispersed or attracted, disconnected, coming back again again into the body. And the, the language the Buddha uses, it's like to steep the body with attentiveness, to, to, to permeate and to penetrate the body. Sort of steeping, it's like a, you know, a cup of tea, isn't it? It's like, ah, okay, until it soaks in, until the, what's here is kind of flowing through the whole system. And so the body is this place in which we, which we allow the, the heart-mind to land, to gather, and whether or not we're doing this just as a foundation for continuing and another practice or whether we're wishing to really emphasize and follow the trajectory of, of samatha further. As a foundation, again, body is so helpful, so helpful. And, uh, you know, the Buddha speaks of the benefits of doing this. And it, it's kind of funny, sometimes it's like, I don't know what else was going on at the time of the Buddha that much in terms of this, but it's like, oh, it's just an advertisement. Sometimes the Buddha will say, look, these are all the good things you can get if you do what I'm suggesting. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. You know, we, 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 I tend to feel a little bit like, mm, I'm not sure we should do that. Maybe things were different in his time. But nonetheless, he does say, and if you're interested in the Kayagata Sati, which is a mindfulness immersed in the body, as uh, one of the translations describes it, uh, sutta, or teaching. It's in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length sayings, 119. Some people might want to know that, 119, but it's there. Um, and, you know, he talks about, so if you practice this, if you establish this, if you develop this mindfulness, awareness, presence, sensitivity, immersed in the body, that this is the basis for conquering discontent, and delight. And delight is one of those words we have to be careful with how we pick it up because when the Buddha's using it, he's using it to do with the way we become enchanted and en enamored with experience in the hope that it will give us something it can't. He's not saying don't take delight in what is beautiful or lovely and the whole practice of of cultivating appreciative joy is about actually delighting in what is worthy of delighting in. So again, when we hear something like conquering discontent and delight, ah, this is what the Buddha says, oh, that if we're 
really in contact with the body than the pull of attraction. Essentially, the pull of attraction and grasping towards the pleasant and the unpleasant is profoundly reduced, and we could say even muted, by the attention that's in the body when it's established there. The Buddha also says that mindfulness immersed in the body is the basis for, for one who has, has, has this practice will conquer fear and dread, will not be conquered by fear and dread. And again, it's not to say one won't experience such difficult responses, but that that sense of being overwhelmed or carried away by it is profoundly reduced and our ability to handle it is incredibly well supported by being established in the body. And again, part of that is because the way we become overwhelmed is the mind in spinning in anxiety and fear and dread tends to move into the future, away from the body. The energy rises up, and you can notice that it rises up, it, it, le it leaves the earth. We go into the head, the head spins, and it's almost like we even leave the body. Energetically, we go boom out into the situation that's in front of us, far distant, possibly completely mind-constructed, or maybe actually possibly quite likely going to happen but hasn't happened yet, and we're gone. And so mindfulness in the body helps us to handle that. It's so useful. And the Buddha says, mindfulness immersed in the body allows the practitioner to, to bear cold and heat and hunger and thirst, harsh words and painful feelings. It's like, ah, oh, all those things we don't like. if we can be in the body. It's a resource and a support for handling them. To bear them. Hard to bear these things. And this is the, the phrase that I most enjoy as a translation of dukkha, the Buddha's word dukkha. We often talk about as suffering, but we hear also about it as, as stress or as uh, anguish or various words are used. But the, the phrase that for me captures it is that which is hard to bear. So, oh yeah. Yeah, all of that. And we can bear it. Mindfulness, presence, attentiveness established in the body allows us and supports us to bear all of that. And the Buddha talks about uh, it allowing us to obtain. We get things as well. It's not just about being with and letting go, but actually you know, obtaining samatha and the deepening states of samatha that we call jhana, absorption. Without difficulty, he says, for one established in mindfulness, immersed in the body. Mm. As well as providing a sort of a, a pleasant abiding here and now. And it's like, hmm, sounds good. Yeah, you know, I'll take two, please. Um, they don't do a two-for-one offer in the suttas usually, but... You have that sense of something's being invited to call us forward. See, what, do I, what am I interested in? What might I resonate with? Because some of you, of course, will have come with a sense of, yeah, this is what I'm going to practice here. Some of you might have come with a sense of, I'll just see what speaks to me or what starts to reveal itself and unfold. And whichever way is perfectly fine and good. Um, and yet sometimes that sense of, oh, the body and what then... I hear might touch me and oh, this, this feels interesting or attractive to me. And the Buddha goes on for the next five 
benefits of the 10. Did I say there were 10? Um, 10 benefits of mindfulness immersed in the body. The next five of them are the supernormal powers, the psychic powers the Buddha talks about. And it's like, I think a lot of Western practitioners just go, uh, you know, people long ago, they had all sorts of strange ideas. They must have been a little bit sort of out there. Um, and the Buddha talks about, uh, you know, walking through walls, appearing here, disappearing there, psychic powers, being able to see into the past and the future, to be able to read other people's minds, to know their own past and future rebirths, all these things. It's like, oh, I think it's really helpful to leave oneself open to the uncertainty of that one. If you don't have your own experiential knowledge of what that might be, then one could say, hmm, not what I'm interested in, which is fine, because I think uh, mostly they cause people a lot of trouble if they aren't really mature and established in practice. If, and people sometimes do describe having those experiences. And one of my teachers, Aja, uh, um, Acharya Munindra, he, um, he would talk about one of his students who also became a well-known teacher, Deepama, and describe how she, under his guidance, trained in these particular capacities because he saw she had a mind that could do it. He said, my mind couldn't do that, but she had a mind that could do that. And that she would, you know, he'd be there in time for the meditation interview and she'd appear. So, okay. <laughs> and then you know, have the interview. You know, so are you mindful? <laughs> you know, how was your walking meditation? I, I don't know what the questions were. Um, and then when the interview is finished, she disappear. I didn't ever get the sense he was making something up. So I just I, I wasn't there. I didn't see it happen, but I trusted that teacher. He was a wonderful, beautiful teacher for me. It's like Wow. Okay. Yeah. I have to leave that one open. The tenth of the benefits the Buddha speaks about mindfulness immersed in the body is that one who has established this, who has cultivated this, who has developed this, reaches and abides in the deliverance of heart and mind, which these teachings invite us to realize and to know in our own lives, our own practice, our own hearts, mind and body. As the Buddha said, within this fathom-long body, fathom is about six feet by the old sort of imperial measurements, well, it's exactly six feet, in fact, just under two meters. In this fathom-long body, all the Dharma is revealed. The path and the world, suffering and its cause, dukkha and its cause, its origin and its end, and the path there too. All this revealed in the body. through the body. And so, we have these bodies. We have this opportunity to practice in these supportive conditions. How fortunate that this is the circumstance.
let's sit for a few moments together. May we all, in our practice here and in our lives, may we come to know that deep establishment, to cultivate and practice this deep establishment of mindfulness, awareness, presence in the body, with the body, immersed in body. For our own well-being, for our ease, And for our discovering more and more of our deepest and greatest possibilities and potential. To know peace and freedom. For our own well-being. For the welfare of each other and all beings for the well-being of all that lives and all that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.